Aramaic connection with Daniel. It has a very intentional structure. These chapters hang together. Uh, so it begins and ends, chapter 2 and chapter 7, with a vision of four kingdoms. We'll look at one of those today and one of those in a few weeks. Uh, and, and in both cases, there's a succession of four kingdoms uh, who are eventually replaced by the kingdom of God, which will be everlasting. Chapter 3 and chapter 6, probably the most popular chapters of Daniel, are two examples of faithfulness amid suffering. Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. And then chapter 4 and 5, in both of those chapters we see God disciplining a proud ruler. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, and he's later restored. In chapter 5, Belshazzar exalts himself, he doesn't humble himself, and he's judged. So what do we take away from these chapters? I think we can take away three things. Chapter 2 and 7 teach us that God alone will reign forever, while all earthly kingdoms will eventually pass away. Chapter 3 and 6 focus on the theme of deliverance. God delivers his faithful servants who entrust themselves completely to him. And 4 and 5 focus on the theme of God exalting the humble and bringing down the crown. So that's where we're going in the next six weeks especially, these Aramaic chapters of Daniel. Um, you can also put it as the God reveals, rescues, and rules. Um, and I've noted again all those verse numbers that are quoted there contain one of those verbs or a related idea. So that's been a big picture of where we're going in Daniel, right? These chapters that are showing us the character of the one true God and also showing us what it means to live for Him as His people. So turn to chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is a long chapter, so I'm going to walk through it uh, step by step. I'm going to summarize some parts as we go along. Uh, but I'm going to be, begin by reading verses 1 through 12. So, reading to me here. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word will be as firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards, and great honor, therefore show me the dream. And its interpretation, they answered the second time and said, Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king, the, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon Over the last several years, the city of New Haven has uh, come to advertise itself as an increasingly attractive place for people to come and live and settle. Uh, perhaps 20 years ago, New 
pavement had a reputation for high crime rates, boarded up houses, and absentee landlords. But over the last 10 years, the downtown area in particular has seen all kinds of new developments, from bike lanes to biotech companies, restaurants and rental properties. In a couple of years, if the developers have their way, we'll have another neighborhood right in our backyard where there's a big parking lot now. According to a recent survey, the population of New Haven has grown by 5% in the last decade and is projected to grow even more than that in the next decade. Now, if you were born and raised here, uh, you know the story is a little more complicated than that. Gentrification always has some pros and cons. It hasn't affected all neighborhoods in the same way, but in many ways, New Haven is seen, and I think in some ways rightly so, as an up-and-coming city. And similarly, Babylon in the time of Nebuchadnezzar was also an up-and-coming city. It was prospering economically as the capital of a large and rapidly expanding empire. It was becoming a center of science and education, where the brightest minds from all over the ancient world were brought to study and learn. It was undergoing a renaissance of art and architecture. Precious works of art were being restored. The old lost Akkadian language was being recovered. Ancient temples were being reconstructed. We learn from verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was in his second year of his reign. Now actually, as we count, it was probably the third year of his reign because the Babylonians counted the first year as what they called the accession year, and then the second year they called the first year, and the third year they called the second year. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was about 30 years old at the time, and he was on top of the world. His military campaigns were moving forward with great success. He already controlled Syria and Palestine. He was receiving annual tribute payments from four major cities in the region. But what we see at the beginning of this passage is that in the heart of Babylon, in the privileged center of the powerful empire, all was not well. There was unrest in the up and coming city. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And these dreams troubled him to the point of sleeplessness. We don't know how long this lasted, but if you've ever experienced insomnia, you know that it can start to mess with you pretty quickly. Most people, if you go two or three days without any sleep, most people will start hallucinating. And after that, it goes downhill pretty fast. Even if you're getting some sleep every night, a sustained lack of peaceful sleep can make you feel frazzled or even desperate. As a Babylonian, as well, Nebuchadnezzar would have seen dreams not just as a disturbance or a projection of his own imagination, but as potentially a mode of divine communication. Part of the Babylonian training that his advisors had gone through included training in the interpretation of dreams, discerning which ones might be divine messages. And so, Nebuchadnezzar calls together his advisors, those who are supposed to have insight into dreams and wisdom, both human and divine. But here's the problem. He doesn't just ask them to interpret his dream. He asks them to tell him what he dreamed. Now you might ask, why would Nebuchadnezzar make such an unreasonable request? Of course you can't tell somebody what they dreamed if they can't tell you what they dreamed. Perhaps had he forgotten his dream? Maybe he was so troubled by it he couldn't stop obsessing over it until he figured out what it was. But there might be another factor involved as well. It's very possible that he was testing his advisors. 
because he didn't trust them. You see, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, they claim to have special knowledge and insight into things both human and divine. And perhaps the king had become suspicious. He said, I think they're just making this stuff up. So I'm going to call them bluff. I'm going to ask them to tell me something that only I know. And there's no way they could just guess it or make something up that sounds good. Tell me my dream that I had last night. Well, either way, verse 3 to 11, we see this escalating conversation that goes back and forth three times between Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors, right? First, they're calm and respectful, and then, verse 5 and 6, Nebuchadnezzar's tone rapidly escalates, threats of terrible punishment, and offers a great reward, and then he gets hysterical. He accuses them of lying and corruption, trying to gain time until the times change. Maybe he's suspicious of a plot that undermines his authority, or maybe he's just paranoid. His advisors say, you're making a completely unreasonable request that no human being should be expected to fulfill. And then, verse 12, he commands that they all be destroyed. So what do we have here in Babylon? We have Nebuchadnezzar, the young, ambitious, successful leader, anxious, restless, suspicious, desperate to be in control and in the know, prone to anger and violence, and then his advisors. On the one hand, they're the victims of Nebuchadnezzar's unrealistic demand. They're being asked to do something that's clearly beyond their capacities as human beings. On the other hand, all of their supposed expertise and claimed insights names all. They admit as much in verse 11. They say the gods don't live here with us. Only they can give you the answer. They're far away. They seem incompetent and evasive, nearly useless. You see, both Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors, they live in a universe where the one true God is not at the center. And even though they're on top of their world, their world is beginning to crack apart. You see, when God is not in the center, our life inevitably begin to revolve around something else. Maybe our reputation, maybe our confidence, maybe our sense of being in control, our future ambitions. But however worthy those pursuits may be, they can't bear the weight we put on them when they become the center of our universe. And so we live with an underlying anxiety and restlessness because we know that our lives are built on fragile foundations. Ernest Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, wrote this. He said, I think that taking life seriously means something such as this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. When you go to ancient Babylon or modern New Haven, there's anxiety, there's restlessness, there's even desperation. Not just in the hood, among people who are struggling to survive, but in the halls of power, 
here more than two or three weeks. I think you know what I'm talking about. The anxiety and insecurity that's often hidden under the appearance of competency and self-sufficiency is extremely erasive. If you're single, there's the restlessness of the dating scene, the constant comparisons of people's bodies and personality types, or more broadly speaking, the fear of missing out that leaves us longing for intimacy, but deathly afraid of commitment and unable to reconcile those two desires. Or if you're married, and we sometimes experience a desire to be in control of our spouse. Or we have a feeling that we deserve, we have the right to be fulfilled by our spouse that leads us to make unrealistic and even inhuman demands like Nebuchadnezzar did of his advisors, and then explode in fury or withdraw in silence when our spouse does not meet those demands. You see, all these symptoms just point to a deeper reality, that something else has displaced God at the center of our lives. Something else has taken center stage in our affections and our allegiances. And deep down, we know that we are building our lives on a fragile web that is bound to one day unravel. So we feel anxious and restless. That's a problem that this chapter presents. It's a problem we see in verses 1 to 12, unrest in the upcoming city. But then in verse 13 to 30, we see wisdom from a prayerful exile. Verse 13 we learn that Daniel and his friends are caught in the middle. They too would be killed, along with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now most likely they just finished their three-year training program. They were the newbies among the wise men of Babylon. They were the junior faculty, not the tenured professors. They were the residents, not the attendings. But soon they would be gone, along with everyone else, if the king's decree was carried out someone didn't do something. But despite Daniel's use and inexperience and vulnerability, he didn't panic. He didn't run away. He didn't freeze. Instead, verse 14 to 18, he did three things. He asked for clarity from Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who was responsible for carrying out the king's decree. He says, just so I can be clear, what's really going on? And why does this have to happen now? He asked for clarity. Then he asked for time. Verse 16, he asked for a time to meet with the king. And third, he asked for prayer. Verse 17 and 18, he asked for prayer from his friends. 